This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Jane Smiley, who has written a new novel, A Dangerous Business. This is the, I counted them, 18th novel. There are also five nonfiction books. There are eight young adult books. And before we go into discussing this, what about short fiction? Do you write any short fiction? I haven't written that since I was younger, since I was in school. The only short piece I've written, which was about, oh, five or six years ago, was a a Shakespeare thing for the Folio Library. And it was about Marguerite of Navarre giving Desdemona some advice. Do you just not like that particular kind of writing, or it's just that you're more involved with novels? I think short fiction is more about giving a bit of a surprise. And I like things to develop more slowly, and I like to think about them in in more detail than that. So when I look back on my short pieces from, you know, 30, 35 years ago, I don't really understand how I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about your new novel, A Dangerous Business. Last time I talked to you was about Perestroika in Paris. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you said either you were completing it or even might have finished Dangerous Business at the time. But let's go back. After you finished Perestroika in Paris and we were coming out of the pandemic, What brought you to write a novel about 1850s Monterey? I mean, you're there, but what prompted you to go, hey, this is what my next novel is going to be? Well, some years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I thought I should do a Joyce Carol Oates sort of thing and do some murder mysteries set in California under an assumed name, under a pen name. And I thought, okay, I'll set one in each county in California. And then I looked and saw that there were 58 counties. (laughs) I said, "Uh uh-oh, I don't think I can do that. But part of the idea was that I could do some historic murder mysteries. And the first one would be in Monterey County because Monterey was the first capital. Didn't last long, but it was the first capital. So then I started walking around Monterey and looking at all the buildings, which are in great shape, and just being in the landscape and the town and the landscape and the town, looking at the missions, sort of thinking about the history, I thought, oh, this will be fun to do, even if I don't do 57 more. And then it was in the back of your mind when you were writing other books. Well, that's always true for me. I'm always switching back and forth between one project and another, because I think that's a, it's a good way to sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of get your mind moving to stop obsessing about the one that you're doing and to think about something else. So you were actually writing A Dangerous Business while you were writing Perestroika? Well, not on the same days, but, you know, I, I do say a draft of Perestroika And then when that draft was finished or had been sent to the publisher or something, then I would work on a dangerous business because I don't like 
to have any time going by where I'm not working on something. Ah, uh, so when you were busy finishing up on Perestroika and working on a dangerous business, that was still during, it wasn't a shutdown. It had already kind of faded away a little bit, but you were pretty much stuck unless you wanted to take your chances in Monterey, right? Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with being stuck in Monterey. At least I wasn't stuck inside the house. So I could go outside and it was a great opportunity to explore the town and the streets, but also the trails and the paths around town that I had never walked on before. And that was really fun. Did you have a map of 1850s Monterey to guide you? Yes, there were maps. It wasn't exactly a map, but there were pictures. The streets haven't really changed their names. They've been paved because they were very muddy in, in those days. But a lot of the streets are essentially where they were. And um, a lot of the buildings that are on those streets are from that period, uh, as early as, say, the 1840s, and then sub subsequent to that. So you could look at, or I could look at the buildings and sort of sense what it felt like to be in the location. And also, I could be glad that the streets were paved. I would think, uh, certainly in the past few weeks. Monterey, was it heavily affected by the earthquake of 1906 or not so much so that a lot of older buildings still exist? I do not think that it was very heavily affected. When we bought the house that I live in in Carmel Valley, part of the deed, I guess it's called, said earthquake-free zone. And so there are a lot of parts uh, around Monterey and in Monterey that aren't as mobile as up in, around San Francisco. Jane Smiley, you decide to write a novel. It's going to be set in Monterey. You pick the 1850s, and now you've got to create a plot and characters. So what was the process of coming to the character of Eliza, and what was the process of figuring out the murder, and then on some level, kind of putting it aside to really delve into what it was like to live in Monterey in the early 1850s? The first thing, thinking about what it was like to live in Monterey in the 1850s, that was my initial idea. That was always in the background. Now, I knew that there were a lot of migrants from the East and the Middle West. I did know that there was a brothel, and I wanted the main character to be a woman, and I wanted her to be able to support herself in Monterey, which would have been very difficult in the 1850s. And so I decided to blend those ideas and give her a way to earn a living and live a, an independent life. You figured that she would, after becoming a widow, the best way to earn a living would be to become a prostitute. Well, it might be the only way. Really? She might have gotten work helping, you know, as a servant or maybe as a nanny, though she has no idea about how to raise children or anything like that. And she doesn't know at the beginning 
right after her husband has died. The only thing she knows is that she does not want to go back to Kalamazoo where her family is. And she has a little bit of money, but she doesn't know what else to do. And then this kindly woman comes up to her and says, why don't you come and see me? And she goes there and realizes it's a brothel. But the woman is kinder to her than anybody else she's known. And her husband has been very sexually demanding of her. And so she feels they've been married for about two years. And so she feels that this is something that possibly she could do. And on top of that, it was kind of an arranged, not kind of, it was an arranged marriage. Mm -hmm. So she didn't have too much choice in whether she liked or disliked her husband. And apparently she did not like him. No, I think he was quite deceptive. I think he wanted, he thought that she was going to be a good helping hand for him. And he also wanted to get to the gold rush. And I think he told the parents, or he let the parents think that he was their religion and he had plenty of money. I did not delve too much into his motives for why he married her, but she's a nice looking 18 year old girl. He probably thinks he can push her around. And she's a good, healthy girl to push around. What kind of research did you do? Were you able to do much research into life in the brothels? In other words, uh, does Mrs. Parks come out of your imagination or out of your research? She comes out of my imagination. But I knew there was at least one and probably more brothels in Monterey in that period because they were everywhere. You know, that was a way that that was the only way that men got satisfaction in some cases. And when I was finished with the manuscript, I gave it to a local historian and he said, yeah, there were. What about the one lesbian brothel and saying lesbian is kind of not really the point because women went there, not necessarily because they were attracted to women, but because this was their place to get away and just be held. Yeah. And taken care of and be treated kindly. The historian said that he didn't know of a specific brothel like that, but he said that it was plausible. So I took that as a yes, because I really, 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 really wanted Jean in this book. Because? Just because she's interesting. How did she come to you? Did it just say, hey, there's got to be a woman who is different from the others? Yes. I mean, Eliza, at the when her husband dies, she's, she's not even 21 when her husband dies. She's lived a very circumscribed life. And she doesn't have, it's not that she's not smart and um, curious, but she she has no experience that might lead her to understand what's going on. And, but she also needs a friend. Mrs. Parks does not want the girls who work for her to be very visible or to talk about what they do or to gossip with one another. So Eliza needs a friend. And Jean is the person who happens to 
come around and be her friend. And Eliza is instantly drawn to her because she senses that Jean is brave and athletic and funny. And Eliza likes that. She definitely takes over the book in her own way. (laughs) (laughs) She can't help it. Well, that's what we learned from Sherlock, you know? Right. That's what we learned from Sherlock Holmes. Watson gets to observe everything, and Sherlock gets to be the main character. In this case, it's less Sherlock Holmes than Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Did you draw on... It's been so long since I've read Poe. Did you draw on any of Poe for the plot of the murder part? No. Only for their the sense that Eliza and Jean have of how in the world to go about this, because nobody else is going to. And so they take uh, Lupin as their guide in a way. Yeah, they are very well read in the sense that any book that comes to them, they're reading. Uh, was that a fact? An actual factor in Monterey that people were clamoring for books to that degree? Well, I think that there were books around and it it varied from person to person, but the books were expensive. So you had to borrow them or, you know, get a hold of them in some way, but definitely books were around. Birth control, you describe that, and I assume that comes out of your research. Yeah. Where did you find about birth control. Was that part of the research into the brothel? Yes. I mean, I think most women are interested in the history of birth control. I had never heard of a pessary before, but then I discovered what it was and that it was common in those days. So there were various things. And then if, if the young woman got pregnant, there were various things she could do then too. So I did whatever research I could do and uh, tried my best to put it in there. And clothing and food, what they ate in that cafe and what she wore, uh, was that separate research as well? Well, mostly the clothing was about what was likely for her to wear around here, what people were wearing in that period. A lot of the clothing that she wears has been handmade, say, by a relative or stuff like that. I think the the, prob- the worst, the most difficult issue was the issue of shoes, boots, how you got around in the mud, how much they cost, who made them. I think that was probably the, the biggest issue. When you were writing the book, did you come across any facts that you had no idea about that just kind of fit perfectly into the book? One of the most interesting things about the research was reading about the the way that the uh, Hispanic settlers and the English settlers or the American settlers, the way that they got along. And in Monterey, around Monterey and Carmel, they got along pretty well. The other interesting thing was finding out about who who brought the money and brought big bought big pieces of property, what kind of property they got, uh, what they did with the property, how each of the local towns developed, 
And so the peninsula has five or six towns, and each of them developed separately from one another. And each of them is, in the sen- some sense, a different landscape and a different climate. One of the most interesting facts that I hadn't known before was that they thought that Monterey was going to be a great big harbor, but then they discovered when they when it was settled that the orientation of the bay meant that the winds were too une- uneven or, you know, too variable. And so sometimes the ships could get in and sometimes they couldn't. And so that was the reason that Monterey, which has this beautiful bay, you'd think they could, you know, make a huge port out of it. That was the reason Monterey had to give up to San Francisco. And so uh, that was another thing that I thought was interesting and that I put into the book. One thing I found interesting is, you know, we live in modern times and, you know, you're two hours from me. But in those days, San Francisco and the East Bay, which was mostly vacant or still trees at that point, Mm They were really far away. You couldn't just say, hey, I'm going to San Francisco. That was a trip. Well, that was a trip, and it was a big decision. For uh, Eliza, one of her young customers, comes from the family ranch that's essentially in Carmel Valley, sort of not far from where I live. And when he wants to go into Monterey, it takes him a really long time. He can only do that every once in a while. And it basically, it takes me 20 minutes. The mystery itself, Jane Smiley, the mystery, did you work that out beforehand or did you kind of, as you were writing, kind of it opened itself to to you? I did the second thing. I knew what was going on. I set up the killings and the plot. And then as I did the research into what life is like in Monterey and as I walked around and drove around the peninsula. Then I had to figure out what what it was likely to happen. The other thing was that, you know, both Eliza and Jean are total neophytes at this. And so they try things, they want to do things, they want to find out things, but they don't know, they've never done anything like this before. So they have to make a few mistakes or go sometimes in the wrong direction before they can figure out what actually happened. And as they're doing that, it's coming to you, who was doing the killing and how it's going to turn out, like almost an aha moment at some point? Well, I had a sense of who was doing the killing fairly early on, maybe say halfway in. But The thing is, when you're writing a mystery, which I have done one time before, you have to be so circumspect about what you think so that the hints don't creep into the narrative so that the reader can see them. So that, that in some sense, is the hardest part of writing a murder mystery is don't give it away. And you titled the book a dangerous business because of a quote, being a woman is a dangerous business. Is that quote just from the book or did you get that from somewhere else? No, that's just from the book. I really enjoyed exploring the character of Mrs. Parks. Now, 
Here we have Eliza, who's 20, 21 in, in the book. And here's this woman who's who runs the brothel. And I imagined her being maybe in her early 40s. And she comes from the East, and she too has spent time as a prostitute. And she is a very organized and understanding woman. And one of the things that she must understand is that the girls that work for her have to be taken care of and they have to be treated well. Because in Monterey at that time, the proportion of females to males was pretty small. And so if Mrs. Parks wants to have a business that lasts and thrives, she has to take good care of it. And I also think she's a decent person, uh, inherently a decent person. She's from the East, um, and she is the first one who tells Eliza about a women's voter rights convention that took place in upstate New York around the time that all of this is taking place in California. So I, I was very fond of Mrs. Parks, and I think I wanted her to treat the girls well. There's also a sort of around the edges, the anti-slavery movement, and I won't get into some secrets that are revealed there, but from you, for you as a writer, is it was it hard to kind of tamp down that and the women's movement so that it just kind of simmers behind the scenes? One of the things that I liked was that the men that she meets in her job, who some of them are quite old, some of them are quite young, and some of them are, you know, about her age. They're very different from one another, and they have different sets of knowledge. And they have different opinions about what's going on in the country. So that gave me an opportunity to talk about things that she would have talked about with some of these men. But that, that I would say that was my favorite part, was having her meet all these guys and having her observe them and enjoy some of them and be afraid, afraid a little bit of some of them. And that was one of my favorite parts. And creating these different men themselves, because each one has their own personality that only she can see. Yes, that's the wonderful thing about writing about a woman who works in a brothel. She gets to see things about men that aren't public. And you get to play with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give one giveaway a little bit, because one of my favorite ones was when a father brings his teenage son in to be introduced to sex. And the son, Eliza quite likes the son. And the thing the son is most interested in is looking at Eliza because he wants to be a doctor and he's never actually seen a woman without any clothes on before. And that's what he's interested in. <laughs> you must have been laughing while you were writing it. I was enjoying it for sure. Jane Smiley, I want to move a little bit from that and ask you a couple of things that I don't think I've asked you about in the past. In 2011, you wrote 
a book called Charles Dickens, A Life. What was your impetus in writing it? And having written a biography, did that aid you in just learning more about the research? Or was it just, I'm going to write about Dickens because I love him? I think I read online that someone was doing a series of books about people that literary people, but others too, who were important from the 19th century, who were important in the 20th century. And I contacted that person who was the editor. And I said, I think you should do one about Charles Dickens. And he said, okay, go ahead and do it. And I knew that there had been a lot of, or a number of books about Dickens from his own time and later. But one of the things that interests me about biographies is that lots of times they are about the biographer's opinion of Dickens or of the of the character that's, or the person that's being written about. And I was more interested, since the book had to be short, in trying to imagine what it felt like to be Charles Dickens, what it felt like to grow up the way he did and to have his success and to write the books and to have his set of, what do you want to call them, idiosyncrasies or eccentricities. And I quite enjoyed it. I read the previous biographies. I walked around London and looked at the places that Dickens would have been. And um, I read all the books and it, it was a lot of fun. What was it like rereading all of these books after many years? Well, some of them held up and some of them didn't. It turned out that my favorite wasn't David Copperfield, which had been before. It was now Our Mutual Friend. And that's pretty much still my favorite. I think that's a totally fascinating book. It has the best portrayal of a stalker in the history of literature. I really, really liked it. You know, I liked plenty of the others, too. It was fun to reread them. Well, the thing about Dickens, aside from the political nature of his books or the social commentary on the books, is the way he involves coincidence, which, I mean, you know, somebody once said that Coincidence happens in real life, but you could never put it into a book because no one would believe it. And Dickens did it all the time. Well, that's true. I I think he had a lot of characteristics that are totally unique to him. And one of my other favorite authors is Anthony Trollope, and I think they were they were this strange kind of simultaneous mismatched couple. I always call Trollope the king of ambivalence. And I always think of Dickens as maybe the most observant writer ever. I was looking at IMDb and, you know, I saw three things. And one was A Thousand Acres, which became a successful film. Another was The Secret Lives of Dentists, based on a novella called The Age of Grief. How did that come about, and did you have anything to do with it? Somebody just contacted me and said, do you mind if we make this movie? And I said, go ahead. And I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was much more interesting than the book, but don't tell the audience that. <laughs> well, I also saw that, uh, at least in IMDb, and they get things wrong, that you wrote an episode of Homicide, Life on the Streets. 
I helped write an episode. Homicide Life on the Street. The guy who ran the show and was the director was a guy named Henry Bromell. And he was a teacher of mine at the Iowa Writers Workshop. And so when he went into the TV business and stopped writing books, he, he, he wrote some really good ones, but he stopped writing them. He let me sort of contribute, but I'm not going to take any credit for whatever it was. Do you even remember at this point? No. What do you see as the difference between writing an adult novel, even if it's got animals who can talk to each other like Perestroika in Paris, versus writing a young adult novel? Well, I think a young adult novel has to be very straightforward, and you have to lay things out on the page in a pretty direct way so that your reader can follow them, can follow the events, can picture the setting, can picture the characters, can understand what's going on. So I did my best uh, with the, and I wanted the kids' books to be about horses because when I was a kid and we were learning to ride, it was all about the whip and the spur. And the books were kind of like that too. And so that all changed. So when I came back to horses as an adult, it was much different in the way that you saw horses, in the way that you understood them, and the way that you tried to get them to behave. And so that's that was my goal, to show that. And that's what I did. And since I wanted to do that, I knew it had to be very straightforward. Speaking of horses and dogs, because I was telling you a couple of dog stories before we I pressed record. But sometimes when I'm walking Ringo, I, it, it almost feels like I'm walking a horse. And I'm wondering, is there that much difference between, you know, these different species that have somehow become our friends? I mean, there's big differences, but then sometimes I see little similarities. Well, I see similarities, but the thing about dogs, well, the thing that both horses and dogs share is that each one is quite different from every other one. You know, even if they're siblings in the, from the same litter or coming from the same mare, they're quite different from one another. And I think that we pay more attention to that in animals now than we used to. I'm just listening on audiobooks to a book by a man named Henry Ong about how animals perceive and how their intelligence and senses work. And so many things have changed since I was a kid that you just have to pay attention to the horse or the dog and try to understand how his mind is working or her mind is working and how to get them to cooperate. It can't be the whip or the spur. You have to be, treat them with understanding and you have to lure them into trying to do the best they can. Jane Smiley, plays and screenplays, have either of those interested you? And what about these long-form television shows, which would be appropriate for some of your longer novels? Plays have not interested me. I've never tried to write a play. I did try to write a screenplay once, but then I realized that 
you are not the boss of your screenplay. The director, the producers, a whole bunch of other people are going to walk in and fiddle with it. And I didn't want to do that. I want to be the boss of my own work. And I don't, I like having an editor who gives me advice, but I do, I do not want to be told that this works, this doesn't work. We're getting rid of this. We're getting rid of that. So no, I've never been interested in that. I am interested in what, what movies come out of my books and how they're different from my books. But that's, there's only been two of those. So, you know. It's no big deal. And you have others that are optioned, which just never made? Yeah. They tried to get Perestroika in Paris made, and they haven't been able to find... They want to make it an animated movie, and I, I would love for them to do that, but I, they haven't been able to figure that out. So you never know. It's like they the agent comes along and says, oh, I have a great idea for this one. I'll send it out, and then you never hear from them again. That's my experience. Jane Smiley, when we started, you said that while you were working on Perestroika in Paris, you were already well on the way to either thinking about or starting the writing of A Dangerous Business, your most recent novel. What are you working on now? I just turned in my manuscript, corrected draft of a novel called Lucky. And it's because I started to write it because I was in St. Louis in 2017. And I got an interview and the guy asked me if I'd ever written a book set in St. Louis and I hadn't. And I thought that's really weird since I grew up here. So I decided to set a book in St. Louis about a woman who is about my age, but she makes her way in the music business rather than the literature business. And so I just followed her through that. Is it contemporary? Yeah. And any uh, more mysteries that you would have put under a pseudonym? <laughs> there is one. It's just sitting around. I wrote it in uh, 2012. I kind of like it. Maybe it'll get out sometime. Is it finished? Yeah, it's finished. And I also wrote a sequel to The All True Travels and Adventures of Liddy Newton. And I really like it. But my editor said, I can't look as though I'm obsessed with the 1850s. So we have to wait on that one. You can't look like you're obsessed with the 1850s, yet somewhere in there we see Charles Dickens. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's okay to be obsessed with the 1850s. It was a very interesting time. Well, there's an American historian that I'm acquainted with named David Blight. And he actually said to me, the 1850s was, were a pivotal decade and were the most pivotal decade in American history. And so I think, yeah, the 1850s, let's go for it. You've been listening to an interview with Jane Smiley, whose latest novel is A Dangerous Business. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.